I would ask that you please turn with me in your Bibles today to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. As we continue along, today we find ourselves starting chapter 8. So Mark chapter 8 in verses 1 through 10. Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 10. We're about halfway through the Gospel of Mark. I was just telling Katrina yesterday, you might not know this, but we are like nine months into Mark. We started all the way back in June. Didn't it just seem like a couple months ago we started, didn't it? No, nine months. So, brothers and sisters, hear with me then, please, the, the reading of God's Word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do we have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, something sounds very familiar to me as I read, these, as I read this text. Right? It almost seems as if we just heard this exact same story not too long ago. That's because it was, it was nine weeks ago that we looked at Mark chapter 6 verses 30 through 44 and we read about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And today we read Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000. And it's because of this similarity that there are many critical scholars out there who would say that this second event did not actually occur. That there was only one great feeding like this. And what happened was that there were so many stories of this feeding that one kind of trickles through, becomes tradition, and is recorded in Mark here as the second event when it really isn't a second event. right? But there are great ramifications I want us to see from holding a view like that. And I'll tell you why that is. It's because it denies the historicity of the event. And when you deny the historicity of this event, what it does is two things. It says first that Jesus was wrong. Because later in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to reference both of these feedings. It likewise says that the disciples were wrong. right? That they were in error. That they recorded this event as if it was true when it wasn't. Which means what? It denies, it calls into question the inspiration of Scripture. Let us see what Jesus Himself says. Look down, if you would, at verse 18 
in chapter 8. And this is what Jesus says. He says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did they take up? And they said to him, seven. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus affirms the historicity of both events. He says there were two feedings, not one. What would the disciples say about this? Could they have erred? Could Mark and Matthew have erred in recording this? Could they have been fooled and tricked? Well, I think Peter gives us an answer to that, doesn't he? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So unless you want to say that the Scripture is not divinely inspired, then the authors of this, then, then Mark and Matthew who records the similar event, are not erring because these men are being moved by the Holy Spirit to write this. And the Holy Spirit cannot err as the third person of the Blessed Trinity. What else do we have to remember? Right? We have to remember that Peter is an eyewitness at both of these accounts. He is at the first feeding. He is at the second feeding. And how many times have we said that Peter is Mark's resource? Right? Peter is an eyewitness account. He's telling Mark these things and Mark then is recording them for all of us. And Peter knew exactly what happened. You see, what's sad is that a lot of times in biblical criticism today, what they do at the very outset is they deny the divine character of the Scriptures. And so they say that, no, Jesus had to have been wrong or the disciples had to have been wrong. As these fallible, sinful men stand in authority over the Scriptures and say, this second story can't be true. It doesn't make sense to have these two great feedings. Someone must be an heir. Something must be wrong. But they fail to realize that perhaps Mark is recording actual events. And he's recording actual events and arranging them in this particular manner for a particular reason and purpose. You see, the problem with biblical scholarship a lot of times is that when they look at this literature of antiquity, as they, as they view the Bible like they would any other book of antiquity, But what do we know, brothers and sisters, the problem with that is? The Bible isn't like any other book of antiquity, is it? The Bible is divinely inspired. It is God's breathed Word unto us. And so these scholars, these critics, fail to realize that maybe, just maybe, because the disciples failed to grasp the significance of the first feeding, because they lacked faith in that first feeding that Jesus soon after performs that same miracle again in order that they might come to realize what He's trying to teach them. That they might see what He is revealing to them about Himself. That they might connect the dots in who Christ is. That their stubbornness might be removed from their eyes. Maybe, just maybe, Mark records both of these events in order to bring about for us a confession of faith that we see the divine power of God and we can't help but to confess that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah. 
In fact, this is what it causes Peter to do not long after. In verse 29 of chapter 8, this is when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the very turning point of the Gospel. Brothers and sisters, we know by experience that it's very hard for us many times to catch on to things the first time, isn't it? So why is it any different for the apostles? Those things that you think that we ought to understand immediately, we oftentimes don't. We need to be taught and retaught and taught again often, don't we? Especially to trust fully in the Word of God. And this is what Jesus is doing with these two feedings. This is what Mark is helping us to do as he records both of these feedings for us. And so what is it that the apostles were to learn from this second feeding today? Right? What is it that we are to learn? What are we to understand about the identity of Christ through this second feeding? Well, it's those questions that we are going to answer with three points this morning. And those three points are this. The first point is that we are going to look at Christ's compassion to all. Right? Christ's compassion to all. The second point then that we want to look at is that with Christ, nothing is impossible. With Christ, nothing is impossible. And then the third and the final point is that Christ comforts His own. So Christ's compassion to all. With Christ, nothing is impossible. Christ's compassion to all. Christ comforts His own, excuse me. So point one, Christ's compassion to all. Now we have highlighted the many similarities that both of these stories have. But brothers and sisters, there are an abundance of differences as well. There are many differences. How about from the outset that one of them is a feeding of 5,000 and the other is a feeding of 4,000. Yes, they are both thousands, but one is less than the other. How about where does the first feeding take place? Right? Remember, they're sitting on lush green grass, aren't they, at the first feeding. Here, where are they? They're in the wilderness, we're told. At the end of verse 4, it says desolate place. That word just means desert or wilderness. In the first feeding, it takes place in the course of just one day. They are with Jesus just one day. In the second feeding, they are with Jesus three days. Even the leftovers are different from both stories. In the first story, there are 12 baskets. In the second story, there are only seven. Even the amount that Jesus has to begin with is different, isn't it? In the first story, there are five loaves and two fish. And when we think of loaves, don't think of the loaves of bread like you have at home. Loaves of bread at this time are just they're flat and easy to be broken and passed. In the second story, though, there are seven loaves and a few small fish, we're told. Now, there is also a great similarity between both of these stories, isn't there? And it is that Christ has compassion on the crowd. But even His compassion in both stories comes about for different purposes and different reasons. If you remember from the first event, what happens? As Jesus is coming ashore in the boat and He's seeing all these people walk across the grass, what does He say? I have compassion on them for they are like sheep without a shepherd. Remember how we were talking about that story was really about Christ as the good shepherd. How it tied into Psalm 23. And how He'd make the sheep lie down in green pasture and He feeds them and takes care of them. That is not the reason for Christ's compassion in the second event. Why does He have compassion in the second event? 
Look with me at verse 2 once more. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away to their homes, they will faint on their way. And some have come from far away. Jesus' compassion on the people this time is because they lack their physical needs. Here in our text today is a prime example of what we call common grace. Now, especially for the young people here today, just know that when we say common grace, we're not talking about something that doesn't matter, something that's insignificant. Right? When we say common grace, it just means it's common to all people. Right? It's the grace that God shows both believer and unbeliever alike, even if the unbeliever denies it. It's that grace that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Right, when he says the Father causes His Son to rise on both the evil and the good, that He causes His reign to fall both on the just and the unjust. You see, brothers and sisters, I think a lot of times we tend to forget, or we're guilty of this, of looking at the unbeliever as if they're, they're evildoers, they're God-haters, they're icky. But what we forget is that Christ loves them. Right? Christ loves His creation. All men and women have been created in the image of God. And does God not love Himself? And so God, in a very real sense, loves the entire world. Now, He doesn't love them in the same sense that He loves His elect, but He demonstrates His love here today in sustaining them. And He demonstrates that love to all of us in sustaining all of us each and every day. It is only by God's grace alone that believer and unbeliever are allowed to awaken every morning and not turn to dust and ash because of our sin. And so it's Jesus' love and care for the bodily needs of the people that He demonstrates compassion to them today. Right? Jesus knows that the people would have been in great physical danger had they have left that day without eating. They would have fainted. They could have died. And Jesus Himself knows what it was to be without, doesn't He? Right? Jesus was without physically many times. And so He understood and he, he sympathized with these people. Let me give you a few examples of where Jesus was without. If you remember in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, after Jesus' triumphal entry, the day after we're told that Jesus hungered. In John chapter 19, verse 28, as Jesus hung from the cross, we're told He says, I thirst. And this is when they gave Him that sponge full of that sour wine. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And so Jesus is acutely aware of the needs of men and women because Jesus Himself was in need of those very same things. And so what we see from Christ's response to these people is that Jesus never grew cold in doing good to others. Jesus never grew cold in doing good to others. Even those that sought His demise. Even those that hated Him. Even those that rejected Him. Even those that only came to Him for a miracle. Right? He didn't say, these people are hard of heart. Let them go home hungry. Right? He didn't say, 
They reject me. So who cares if they go home and die? They've rejected the very source of life. So they get what they deserve. He doesn't say that. But I think a lot of times there can be Christians out there who behave in that way, don't they? Right? Where they only, they only like those who, who are in the church and everyone else outside kind of get away from me. Right? You get what you deserve for rejecting Christ. But this is not the attitude of the Christian. Right? The Father sent the Son to redeem a people for what? So that we would be zealous for good works, Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Now those good works ought to abound in plenty within the church. But it also means we are not to neglect doing good to those outside the church. Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says this very thing. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. And what oftentimes results when we show kindness and compassion to the unbeliever? You can look to Paul again, Romans chapter 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping coals upon his head. What's Paul saying here? He's saying when enmity is shown towards you, when hatred, when malice, when anger is directed your way, you do great good and you glorify your Father in heaven. When While being injured, you do not return injury to that person, but rather you show them love. You show them kindness. You show them compassion. So that they will then see I treated them really bad. And yet they treat me really good. They don't treat me according to what I deserve. And what will that do? It will help to magnify, amplify their shame and their guilt. Many times, perhaps helping to soften their hearts then to the Lord. Right? Brothers and sisters, you have great opportunity to lead people to Christ in doing good for others who are outside of the faith. Right? They say, my mother and father don't treat me like that. Right? When I, when I do bad, they treat me bad. My close friends don't treat me this well. When I, do th- when I sin against them, they don't talk to me. They don't treat me well. They don't want anything to do with me. How is it? What is it about your faith? What is it about your God that allows you when treated bad to not treat bad in return? And so, brothers and sisters... We must not neglect to do good to all people. Not only giving food and drink, but giving whatever one needs if we have the available resources. Right? Acts of kindness are not only restricted to food and drink. It could be money. It could be clothing. It could be time. It could be a ride somewhere. It could be weeping with those who weep. But whatever it is, brothers and sisters, we ought not to be walking around with blinders. Like, oh, I hope that person doesn't notice me. I'm going to act like I don't see them as I walk by. But rather, as believers, we ought to be taking notice of everyone's needs and everyone's struggles and doing good to them when we can. But that extends beyond just physical needs as well, doesn't it? It means doing good spiritually to others as well. 
Right? Christ didn't come just feeding and giving drink, but He came more so to give spiritual food and drink. And so the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is a labor of love in doing good to others for our entire existence. That is what the Christian life consists of. We are to constantly be doing good to others, physically, spiritually, believer and unbeliever alike, mimicking our Lord who showed kindness and compassion even on those who were not His people. And I want you to think about that. I want you to dwell upon that. Right Next time you want to pass up the opportunity to help the unbeliever in need, Remember that you at one time were that unbeliever, right? You at one time were the God-hater. You at one time had enmity towards Christ. And yet, what did He show towards you? It was His kindness. It was His love. It was His compassion that led you to the cross. And so what Jesus teaches the apostles is that Christ is compassionate to all. And in doing so, He's revealing something to the apostles about who He is. And He's teaching them how they ought to respond when He is away. And this then leads us into our second point, which is with Christ, nothing is impossible. Now, unfortunately, I have to give this disclaimer because people take this to mean a whole variety of things. When I say with Christ, nothing is impossible, it doesn't mean children to go out to National Avenue and play Frogger and try to dodge traffic because you have Christ. Right? It doesn't mean that you can climb to the roof and somersault off the top and land on your feet without hurting yourself because you have Christ. Right? But we have to understand that there are a lot of people who think that way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, no, you can't. That's not what it means. Right? You have people who take Mark 11 quite literally. Mark 11, verse 23 says this, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done. There are people who literally believe that. To them I say, have at it. Toss the Mount of Olives into the Dead Sea. See how well you do. Jesus is speaking figuratively to the people. He's saying, He's teaching us that there is no task too hard for God to complete when asked in faith that aligns with His will. That's all He's saying. That's all He's saying. He's saying, ask, don't doubt. Remember that God is the sovereign ruler of all things. Anything that you have, anything that you need will come from His hand. That's what we're learning about Jesus today, brothers and sisters. That we are not to doubt His ability to take care of us. We're not to doubt His ability to take care of us. Because all ability and all power lies with Him. He is the one who has created it all. He is the one who has brought it into existence. This is what the disciples are learning. In the second event, they're learning that there is no lack with Christ. He overflows with grace and mercy and compassion and has enough to spare for everyone. Jesus can do the impossible. He can do what man cannot do because Jesus isn't just a regular man, but He is the God-man. I ask, can you work a miracle? No, but Christ can, right? Can you provide for your needs apart from the grace of God? No, 
But can and does Jesus provide for us our food and our drink and our clothing and our shelter and everything that we need? Absolutely. And this is true in our text this morning as well. No matter how much money someone had in that wilderness, it was going to do nothing for them that day. They were so far out from any food source. No matter their will or fortitude, right? nothing was going to feed them. They were going to die on that long journey home. Right? Eating without Christ's miraculous intervention was an impossibility for them that day. They needed God's grace. Right? Christ was the people's only resource in their time of need. But what man cannot do, Christ is quite capable of accomplishing, isn't he, brothers and sisters? When man is hungry, God can provide even when we think it's impossible. And I think many of us have probably experienced this in some way, haven't you? Especially I can think of, from my own personal experience, if any of you have married, if you got married young, you know, maybe you're in school or maybe you didn't have your career yet, you know what it was, right, to go, when is this bill going to get paid? How am I going to pay this bill? Or, you know, you know when is this meal? How, how are we going to eat tonight? We just don't have enough money. And then what, what ended up happening? Doors opened. Somehow that bill got paid, your belly got full, right? And you've seen that what was impossible to us was in fact very possible with God. Right? A lot of people chalk that up to luck, but we know luck does not exist, right? That is God working out His will in our life, providing for us at every opportunity, whenever we need it, so that we would look to Him in dependence as He is demonstrating His divine power to us. And so it's because Christ is divine that He was able to turn these seven loaves and these few small fish into a great meal for over 4,000 people. Look with me once more back at verse 5, please, where we read this. And He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. He gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Right? If the disciples doubted Jesus after the first feeding event, he certainly has given them no reason to doubt Him now, right? He is constantly revealing His identity to them. He is constantly displaying His divine power, showing Himself to be the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. As His divine power is seen and manifested in conquering death, in sickness, disease, the winds, the sea we've seen already, right? And now He takes this small bit of food and is able to multiply it instantaneously for thousands of people. And yet, sadly, incredibly, they still doubt. Not only, not just, four verses from verse 10, they are already arguing again about bread. Look with me, brothers and sisters, real quick, to verse 14 to 16 of chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. We read this. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. 
And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Are you kidding me? It's crazy. It ought to blow our minds. But as we think about it, don't we often find ourselves likewise doubting our Lord, thinking that He cannot perform those things that we perceive to be impossible? Right? I ask, how many of us know people, maybe family members or friends, who although, yes, we say we know God can do all things, that when we, we, we look at them and we say, ah, I know God can do all things, but that person, they're never going to be saved, right? Look how they just live too vile of a life. They reject Christ. They're hardened in heart. They're never going to accept Christ, right? And then what happens years later? That very same person is trusted in Christ and believes. How many of us, when we first came to faith in Christ, said, it's impossible, that doctrine of election. I'm never going to believe that. Like, who, who, who would believe in that thing? Right? If, if that's true, then God can't be good. But now how many of us, as we sit here today, love and cherish that doctrine and thank God every day for His electing grace? How many of us have said, it's impossible. I'm never going to forgive that person right, for what they did to me or what they did to my child or what they said about me or my spouse or my child. And now as you sit here today, you can say to yourself, I have forgiven that person. Those things that we think are impossible to say or do, Christ makes possible in His strength. We are taught here in our text never to doubt. Right? When you think you will not have enough, trust in Christ and He will provide for your physical needs. But even more so, what we are taught here is that when your soul is weary, when your soul is weak, when your soul is faint and you cry out to the Lord, I need your strength, I need your mercy, I need your boldness, I need your courage, that we are to do so likewise, not doubting Him. Right? Trusting that Christ has more than enough to spare for everyone here who belongs to Him. And when He keeps His promise to us, right, He is revealing more to us about Himself. And this leads us then to our third and final point this morning, which is that the comfort that Christ provides His own. The comfort Christ provides His own. Look with me please, verses 9 and 10 once more. And there were about 4,000 people. And He sent them away. And immediately He got into the boat with His disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. We're told eventually, right, Christ dismisses the crowd. And he goes back to the boat with the disciples. Right? He dismisses those who are not his and he stays with those who are his. Now there are people, brothers and sisters, every day in this world that take comfort in many earthly things, do they not? This crowd here today took comfort in the fact that they walked away with full bellies, did they not? But brothers and sisters, what we ought to take comfort in is not the earthly things. But we ought to take comfort that we, unlike the believer, have Christ. Right? That our Lord is with us. Right? In Psalm 144, verse 15, David says, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And isn't that so true? But let us remember that, not only in times of prosperity, but in times of poverty as well. Not only in times of good health, 
but in, when we are in dire straits, when our health is failing and weak. We at times may lack food. We at times may lack drink. We may lack possessions. Right? We may lack strong health, but always remember that God is ours and we are never lacking in Him. Take comfort in this, brothers and sisters, that God is not only ours, but He's ours forever. Right? He is our God forever. When the God of the unregenerate, whoever that is, whether that's themselves or some deity that they serve in their false religion, when that God dies, guess what? The Christian God remains. Our God is eternal. No beginning and no end. The Lord declares to the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 to 12, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses declares the Lord, and I am God. Take comfort, every one of you who believe that this God is your God and He is your God forever. These people in our story here today were fed by Christ but once. They were in the presence of Christ but once. You as believers are fed by Christ daily. You are in His presence daily. He is never far from His people. He gave them food. He gives drink to the thirsty. But the greatest thing Christ could have ever given to you was Himself. And if you are His, He has given you Himself. And having Christ, all fear and worry ought to evaporate. It's the unbeliever who ought to live in fear and worry. How am I going to take care of myself? Right? The believer knows that we are safe in the arms of Christ. We know that we are safe both body and soul, whether in life or death, because of the life and death that Christ lived and died for our sake. And it's in that life and death, it's in that compassion that He shows to all people, but really the compassion He shows to the elect, that He is revealing more to us about Himself. Right? He is revealing to us that He is the only Savior. He is revealing to us that He is the only spotless and blameless Lamb who is able to take away the sins of His people. He is the only faithful high priest. And it's for that reason then that we can amen the answer to question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. And with this I'll close. The question asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair from my head can be touched. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready now to live unto Him. 
And so I say, brothers and sisters, let us live unto the Lord. We do so by the power of the Spirit, looking to the example of Christ, doing good to all people, never doubting our Lord, but trusting, knowing that we are His and that He is ours. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your divinely inspired Word that You have preserved for Your people. We thank You that in it You have revealed Yourself and Your character to Your people. You have identified the manner in which You desire those who are Christ followers to live. We pray, Father, that You would be conforming us every day to the image of Christ our Lord, that You would be uh, giving us a great burden to help anyone and all people who are in need, and yet at the same time, not only caring for their spiritual well-being, but also, Father, caring for their spiritual well-being as well. We ask, Lord, that you would grant to us opportunity that we might share not only what we have physically, but that we might be able to share Christ with those in need. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit would apply these truths to our heart this day and that we might walk in a manner worthy this week, pleasing our Lord. And we ask all these things in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.